0: Nobody else is doing what we're doing. Nobody else is building a GraphQL CDN or gateway. That just doesn't exist. Once you're in this unusual position of being the gateway for people's GraphQL APIs, there's a lot of things we could be doing that could potentially provide value to our customers. There's a bunch of these ideas where we're like, this would be insanely cool to do, right? Like nobody else can do this except for us and it might actually provide value to our customers. And that's what we're really trying to figure out at the moment is not really what do we do, but what do we do next? My name is Max Stoiber and I am one of the co-founders of Graph CDN.
1: This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead. A team that has your back. I'm your host Noah Labpart. and today how Max Stoiber found a way to give you peace of mind so you never worry about scaling GraphQL again. All this and more on Code Story. Max Stoiber was born and raised in a small town just outside of Vienna Austria. From a young age his biggest influence was his mother who left her job to start her own business as a medical expert in the courts. It has been inspiring for Max to watch her find her place in the world, and to box through everything life threw at her. He still finds great inspiration from that today, and very early on he was focused on doing something on his own. When he's not staring at his computer screens, he likes to get outside and boulder with his friends. He got into the sport through other fellow geeks, and feels that bouldering in Vienna is pretty much a nerd sport. He's also a trained skiing instructor and really into coffee as a certified barista. Prior to his current venture, Max has had some great success in the open source world and building a chat tool called Spectrum, which was a platform for community chat. Eventually, GitHub acquired the product and opened a whole new set of problems around architecting a large-scale real-time system. Through a difficult period of learning and service outages, He learned and figured out a better way to reduce traffic up to 95% with edge caching. This is the creation story of GraphCDN.
0: My background is in open source. I've invented a lot of open source projects that lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people use. And through that, I got to meet Brian Lovin and Bryn Jackson who run the design details podcast that some listeners might be familiar with. Great podcast if you're into design. And they started using some of my open source projects for a product that they were building that they were calling Spectrum. And what it was, it was essentially a platform to move their community to. They had this existing community of design details listeners on Slack that I think eight or 9,000 people were in. And Slack essentially came to them and was like, hey, look, It's really cool what you're doing, but please go do it somewhere else. Like either pay us or go do it somewhere else. But Slack charges, I think at the time it was like $5 per member. So this would have been $45,000 a month for a free community of designers that they were running, which obviously they can't afford. And so they started building this community platform for their community and asked me a bunch of questions about my open source projects that they were using. And through that I got introduced to them and eventually became one of the co-founders of Spectrum. Um, And we took their initial idea of building a home for their Spec.fm design details community and extended it to be the home for every community. We were were building this sort of unified um, community platform that actually grew really, really well because it combined the best parts of what forums gave us many years ago, but also what Slack gave us. So it was all thread based and it was all sort of async in the same way that forums are. But the comments underneath each thread were real time chat. And so you had a little bit of the best of both worlds. You could have real time conversations with people, but simultaneously also had the structure that comes from a forum where you can have 10,000 people in a forum without a problem which is not the same thing with Slack. If you've ever been in a Slack community that has 10,000 people in it, um, it's a lot of content <laughs> to keep up with. And so we tried to solve those things and we, we did that for one and a half years and then eventually got acquired by GitHub. So tell me
1: a little bit more about the, the GitHub acquisition. What, that, what, what was that like?
0: So honestly, going through that acquisition was the most stressful time of my entire life. And it's not something that I realized before I went through the acquisition, how freaking stressful they are. Because the way they work is that GitHub was like, okay, we're interested in acquiring you. And then they start doing due diligence. And what due diligence means is they basically ask you a thousand questions. That might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but not by much. Literally every morning, we would wake up to a new email with another dozen questions. And the stressful thing about that is that you have no idea what the right answers are. They ask you everything from what is your background, where did you study, what have you done, to what is your tech stack, what is your backend infrastructure, where are you hosted, what programming languages do you use, how many commits have you done. Well, you know, like all of these super detailed questions. And with every single one you're like triple thinking about what is the under air quotes right answer here right like because every single one of these answers feels like it could be a a a, a no-go for them right like maybe they don't want Node.js and GitHub and so then if you say you use Node.js to write the backend maybe they're like ah, actually we're not interested in this acquisition anymore and shut the entire process down and so it's super stressful to go through that process and honestly I, I tend to sleep really well Uh, thankfully um, I I feel very grateful that I don't have any insomnia or anything like that but during those three months of due diligence I did not sleep well at all I slept maybe one or two hours every night because I was so stressed that something that I had done would fuck up the acquisition for the entire company Um, and I put a lot of pressure on myself and that was really terrible and then GitHub got acquired by Microsoft while they were trying to acquire us and so then Microsoft afterwards was like well actually We want to do our due due diligence process as well and so we had to go through the entire thing once more like literally a second time Um, and it was like that process was very stressful and I'm glad I went through that but I'm not sure I would do it again to be honest Uh, it was a lot of work and a lot of sleepless nights
1: Sure. Oh, I imagine that was a rough stress and rough on your health, but you made it through. You did make it through and and you're on the other side now. I'm glad to hear that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It was all worth it in the end, of course. But um, while you're in it, it's so stressful.
1: Tell me about GraphCDN. Tell me about what the product is and how you got started building it.
0: GraphCDN actually was born a little bit out of our experiences from building Spectrum. Spectrum grew like mad and I was a CTO there and I had no idea what I was doing, right? Like I'd done programming for three years maybe, I had never run a production backend and suddenly I was tasked with architecting this real-time chat, public platform, right? Like this public real-time chat. Architecting and scaling something like that isn't trivial. And I made a lot of mistakes, and one of the biggest mistakes I made was that I chose a database that unfortunately wasn't supported very well. Um, It was called RethinkDB, and the company behind it eventually shut down. And Honestly, just not a lot of people were using it. And so it wasn't super well suited, and it had a lot of scalability problems that we ran into. And what that led to is our service going down probably once or twice every day uh, over a period of months. And of course, your entire service going down once or twice a day is ridiculous, right? Like that makes no sense at all. And we were heavily using GraphQL for all of our API needs and we had exposed our entire data set as a GraphQL API and you could query and mutate everything beautifully from the front end and that part worked beautifully. But the entire time while I was fighting these scalability problems in the backend, I was like, we are a public forum and sure there's some real time chat, but fundamentally, most of the posts are exactly the same for every single user. Why are we even going to the database for every single one of these requests? We should just be putting a cache in front of our GraphQL API to alleviate a lot of the load on our backend. We probably could have had a 90% plus cache rate on our API requests and reduced our traffic tenfold, but that wasn't possible. Like, literally nobody had built that before. And so we were kind of stuck, and I had to spend weeks or even months building a custom caching solution internally that honestly never worked very well. It was pretty terrible. It kind of did the job and prevented us from crashing that often. But that's about it. Like, it didn't work very well. It didn't have any validation. It was just not a great experience. And so this problem after I worked at GitHub and then I I worked at Gatsby, this problem kept being in the back of my head. And then one day uh, in, in at the beginning of this year, I get an email from a good friend of mine that says, Hey, Max, somebody has finally built a prototype of this GraphQL caching thing that you kept talking about. And I was like, no way. You've got to be kidding me. Somebody's finally built this. That's awesome. And so I got introduced to Tim. And Tim is my co-founder now of GraphCDN, and Tim had built a very early first prototype of this GraphQL caching layer and had essentially made it work. He'd essentially proved that you could edge cache GraphQL APIs, and I was immediately enamored. And that's really where GraphCDN started.
1: So tell me about the MVP. Tell me about that first product you built. What sort of tools you used and how long it took you to bring it to life?
0: At the time when I was introduced to Tim, Tim had built the first prototype that was functional. Um, And he had spent, I remember he told me afterwards, he had spent three months of nights and weekends next to his full-time job, investigating how to make this work. Because all of the edge providers, or a lot of them are too slow for caching. Um, They're not performance enough. And the only one that's really super fast is Fastly. And specifically, what I'm talking about there is the invalidation. What's important when you're caching APIs is that a lot of these this data is super dynamic, right? A lot of the data that you'll send back from an API is very dynamic, even if it's a news website. When an article is edited, you can't just have that stale old article sitting in a cache for 10, 15 minutes, right? Like editors expect that typo fix to be live immediately, not 10 minutes after they fix it. That makes no sense to them. And so, Whenever data changes, you need to be able to invalidate the cache really, really, really quickly, which gets even harder if you're doing edge caching, if you have worldwide locations that <laughs> that where you need to invalidate the, the, that data everywhere. And so TMET actually spent months investigating different providers and eventually landed on Fastly, who have super fast invalidation. And he had a first prototype running that could cache GraphQL APIs and i think at that point he would also built the first landing page for to, to collect email addresses of people that are interested I, th- I think that was the state of things when i met him and when i joined and from that point on it took us about i want to say a month to get to a private beta state so where we could where we could onboard first real users having production use cases and have them use us in production and us not having to be scared that everything would crash and burn and that it wouldn't work well for them. And so we went through that email list and found a few suitable prospects and then then, uh, got them onboarded. And that gave us a bunch of really great feedback of stuff that we would need to improve because it turns out a lot of people use GraphQL in very similar ways, which I think is because of the strict schema that you have to follow. And so there's a lot of best practices around that. And most GraphQL APIs look remarkably similar. And a lot of them have remarkably similar use cases and one of the first ones we ran into that we hadn't deeply considered before was authenticated caching if you have users then or if you have like a sas product right then caching public data isn't super useful because most of your data will be different per user and will have authorization attached to it and stuff like that. And so that was one of the first things we had to add um, after we got these first few use cases into production because we realized, hey, a lot of them have authenticated user data that they would really like to cache but currently can't and we can enable that. Um, So that was sort of the state of things. When I joined, uh, like I said, it took us a month to get that first private beta out. and then. Uh, we launched about. We launched officially with self-serve and publicly, I think, two or three months after that.
1: Well, as you're going through the MVP, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? Um, in the short term, you know, technical debt or technical decisions or feature cut. And, and it sounds like you had to go through some of those. Tell me about some of those decisions and how, how you coped with them specifically.
0: We did a lot of iterations on how people configure their cache. Because we knew that, or we very quickly realized, that people have use cases where they want to cache certain parts of the GraphQL API differently from others. And initially we had the system where you could sort of write a big JSON blob, or I think it was YAML, and you could define, okay, you know, uh, give me the user type, and on the user type attach some cache control information like a max age of 900 seconds, a while revalidate time of 900 seconds um, and make it cache per user and we very quickly realized that that gets unwieldy incredibly quickly because people have huge GraphQL schemas. like we've seen GraphQL schemas with tens of thousands of types and fields if not even hundreds of thousands of types and fields. For example, the GitHub GraphQL API is one of the most prominent examples. Their GraphQL API is massive. They have a huge GraphQL API. And if you were to try to configure it with that system, it would take you a year probably to get all of those types written out. And so we spent probably a week or two re-architecting that to match what many other CDNs now have, which is this rules system where you can configure cache rules. And you can say, okay, if a query contains X, Y or Z type or field, then cache it accordingly. And with that rule system, you could sort of reuse these cache control, um, this cache control information and group it by logical pieces that make sense to your specific business use case. So for example, many of our customers have a rule that says authenticated data. And then they just put all the types in there that are authenticated like user, direct message, um, uh, direct message connection, any type that's like different per user they put in there. And so immediately they have a logical grouping of why are these types cached the way they are? And please cache all of these the same because for this specific purpose, they are the same. Treat them as the same um, as the same sort of use case, as the same uh, constraint. In, in this example, it was user-specific caching. And so even very quickly after the private beta, we realized, okay, our, our old configuration system does not scale. Like that, if you have a real production use case with a really big GraphQL API, that does not work. And so we switched to the rule system, which took a, a, a week or two. Now, to be a little bit more close to where we are now, after we, we tried to get the product out of the, out, of the, out of the gate and get it publicly usable by everybody, but of course to do that we had to incur some technical debt in different areas of the code base. And so a lot of what we've done since then is stabilizing our systems because we are critical infrastructure, right? From a business perspective, If we go down, our customers go down. And so we have to have excellent engineering. There's there's no way around that. As an infrastructure provider, we have to be extremely careful with the code we write and ship. And so we spent a lot of time cleaning up our entire code base, writing even more exhaustive test suits, doing really good hygiene basically to ensure that our systems would scale and keep scaling and not break or we would ship something that's broken.
1: So from that point then, how did you progress the product and mature it? And to, to kind of wrap the question in a, in a box, how did you build your roadmap? And how did you decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to address or to build in GraphCDN?
0: That is such a great question because I think that's the thing we struggle with the most. And I don't think I have a good answer for this. And the, the reason is that nobody else is doing what we're doing. Nobody else is building a GraphQL CDN or gateway. That just doesn't exist. But once you're in that position, and and, and I expect that to change, right? Like That's not gonna be the case for very long, I hope. Um, But right now, we're the only ones doing this. And the interesting thing is, once you're in this unusual position of being the gateway for people's GraphQL APIs, there's a lot of things we could be doing that could potentially provide value To our customers. So it's almost like we have this huge list of ideas of things we could do like, for example, rate limiting based on the complexity or cost of an individual GraphQL query. Because normal CDNs cannot really rate limit GraphQL APIs because a request to slash GraphQL can have many different performance implications depending on how small or large the the query is and which specific data it fetches. And so you have to understand GraphQL in order to, to do good rate limiting for GraphQL APIs. That's something we could provide for our customers, right? Like we could provide rate limiting for them. There's a bunch of these ideas where we're like, this would be insanely cool to do, right? Like nobody else can do this except for us, and it might actually provide value to our customers. And so a lot of what I'm actually doing right now, specifically is doing customer research. So speaking with both um, existing customers about their problems that they run into with the GraphQL API, but also potential future customers and other users of GraphQL with use cases that maybe Maybe they don't even really want caching, maybe they have a use case where caching doesn't make sense, but there's probably still something where we can provide value to them as this GraphQL CDN. And that's what we're really trying to figure out at the moment is not really what do we do, but what do we do next and what provides the next, the the, the biggest value to the most people. Um, And that's really a big question that honestly, I don't think we have a good answer for right now, right? Um, We obviously have a short term roadmap over the next two months, where we're going to work on a lot of different things. But beyond that, it's, well, what's the next big topic? I don't really know. You know, we, we haven't really figured that out. There's so many things we could do that we just got to listen, put our ears to the ground, figure out how we can help our customers the most, and then ship that.
1: That uh, makes sense. That's always the most difficult thing. And what do we do next? What is the most valuable thing for our customers, for our users? Um, and it's a, it's a dance. It's, a, it's definitely a dance. How did you go about building your team and in in doing that, what do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you?
0: We've gotten incredibly lucky with our team. We knew from the basically first day that we co-founded GraphSteam, that ultimately the team that we would build and the people that uh, we would hire would make or break our success no matter what else happens, if we have a team of really great people, will we have a much, much higher chance of success than any other way. It's the main reason why companies succeed or not. And so from the get-go, we knew we wanted to invest in building a really, really good team. And what that boils down to is one, we've, we're slightly, f- We're actually very fortunate in that in the engineering world both Tim and I are pretty well known for the open source work we've done. And so we have a lot more access to really great engineering talent than other people. And we've been able to hire a lot of really great engineers that um, uh, that we've just known for years. We've worked with many of these people for years on our open source projects or they know us through our open source projects or they've used our open source projects. And so we have... Um, a way to get to them and we have an intro and we we can talk to them and talk to them about GraphQL right Um, and so a lot of the engineers that are working for us right now are for example um, core contributors to GraphQL clients or they've built they've worked on the GraphQL framework itself or they've worked on the GraphQL playground or they've worked on many of these different GraphQL related open source projects and products and so they have we have so deep GraphQL experience that I feel like an absolute noob like I've used GraphQL for three four years now and I feel like I do not know anything compared to any of the engineers on our team. It is absolutely bonkers to me. Really fortunate, of course. Great problem to have, but I feel like I'm the biggest idiot on the team right now, which is very... It's a great problem to have, but I gotta I gotta solve that problem. The other thing I would say that we are doing slightly unusually is that we invested in our people function immediately. As soon as we knew that um, GraphCDN had some whatever product market fit you could call that um and we were going to build out a team to actually do this we knew we would need to hire somebody to manage that part of the company because if we fuck that up then if we hire the best people but then don't treat them well they're just going to leave and it's not going to be the outcome that we want and so we got even more lucky because we were able to hire sue audio who previously scaled startups from zero to over 100 employees and i've People. The, the funny thing is, when, when when we announced that Sue was joining GraphCDN, at least half a dozen other founders reached out to me and were like, how the hell did you convince somebody of Sue's experience to join your early stage startup? And the honest to God answer is, I have absolutely no idea. I have no clue why out of all her options, she decided to join GraphCDN, but I'm extremely grateful that she did. Um, and she's really elevated the company to a whole other level, bringing in... Even just, we had our first offsite last month um, with the entire team. And I can tell you that offsite went extremely well, but if Sue hadn't been here, if Tim and I were the ones organizing that offsite, it would have been a catastrophe, right? Just in hindsight, I am so glad that we hired for that position this early on. And I'm super grateful that we got Sue on board specifically, who has that much experience and that much knowledge to bring to the company. But if there's other early stage founders listening, invest in your people function if you can. If you have the money to hire somebody to help with that part of the business, because it is going to change your trajectory meaningfully.
1: Well, let's talk about scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you fighting this as you grow?
0: Thankfully, the way we've built this means we can scale very, very, very far. We are based on Fastly's computed edge product, um, which means essentially, we're relying on Fastly's infrastructure. And that was a very conscious decision. It has some limitations and constraints that we have to work around, but Fastly handles so much traffic. If you remember three months ago, now this was slightly unfortunate, but they they went down for an hour. And so many popular websites were dead during that time because so many companies rely on Fastly. So Fastly sees a level of traffic where I know that no matter which customer happens to sign up and deploy as a production today, we'll be fine. We'll be able to handle it. As long as our code, the code that we run on their infrastructure isn't completely broken, we're fine. You know what I mean? Like we can handle a very high level of traffic that I don't think any single company on the planet even can reach. Um, which thankfully is a very, very, very good benefit of using Fastly. We, choose, we chose Fastly, or I should say Tim actually did a lot of this research. Fastly has one of the, currently at, at the two, like 2021, end of 2021, one of the worst developer experiences you can imagine. Their platform is very early. There is so much, there's so many rough edges that you have to work around, that you have to circumvent, where you have to hack around their systems. But it is by far the fastest edge provider there is. We've tested every single other one and Fastly is just in a a class of its own. It is so fast that we're happy to incur that developer experience hit in return for our customers having a much, much, much faster experience. Um, Because ultimately, to to a lot of our customers, performance is money, right? Particularly if you think about e-commerce use cases, right? Like every millisecond that you can reduce the latency is critical to um to their to their to their income essentially and so we knew we had to focus on that and that's a big part of the reason why we use fastly
1: well as you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built with graph cdn what are you most proud of
0: i think for the most part it's the combination of helping our customers and the team we've built we really help our customers, which feels fantastic. We have customers that were getting traffic spikes repeatedly every single week. I was just talking to another potential customer recently, and I was t- telling them a story about you know traffic spikes and downtime, and their team looked at each other and they went, yeah, that's Tuesdays. And for some reason, that specific customer just always has a huge traffic spike on Tuesdays. They don't even know why. But for some reason, people use their thing on Tuesdays and they always have a huge traffic spike and they always 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 have scalability problems and with our product we can essentially alleviate those concerns entirely and we've had teams that were previously super stressed out and and couldn't sleep well because similar to my story with spectrum they just had to be there and had to be on call and they got paged and woken up frequently and we've been able to reduce that from them for them basically entirely and have been able to take so much traffic and load off of their plate that they can essentially sleep at night, right? And that to me is so incredibly powerful and so incredibly um, gratifying um, to be able to have that impact on somebody else's day or in this case night (laughs) that... that that definitely always makes my day when customers tell me story like that stories like that the other thing is the team we've built the people we've been able to hire like i said incredible incredible people and i'm so so glad that we've been able to assemble the team that we have that we have the expertise in the team that we have because literally everybody is better at what they do than i am and that's incredibly scary because it always feels like i'm the the, the bottleneck for the entire company, right? Like I'm the person that's the worst at everything they do compared to everybody else. But that's kind of also my job, right? Like I got to find the people together with Tim that are better at what they do than we are. And we've been able to do that so far and that feels incredible. And every single day I get to spend with that team is is, is a joy, honestly. It's just a joy working with such smart people that are so invested and interested in what we're working on is mind blowing.
1: Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: The reason this question is a little bit difficult for me to answer is because we don't... At at Graphsy and culturally, we don't really care about mistakes as much. What we care about is that we learn things, right? And everything we do is always, we look at it through the lens of, okay, what have we learned, right? We certainly made mistakes. We've shipped things that we shouldn't have shipped that weren't ironed out where our customers were frustrated. We've messed up sales conversations. We've sent proposals that were uh, way out of way out of bounds. We've we've I've I've learned so much over the past months, but none of it really is like, oh I made a mistake, you know what I mean? It, it's it's always I learned something new and I, I've gotten better because I did this thing. Um, which I think is similar to one of the uh, one of these anecdotes that gets passed around. I feel like in the engineering community of a junior developer that drops the production database, and it takes them hours to restore it, and it costs the company mil- the, the company millions of dollars. And the CEO wants to fire that junior developer, and the CTO says, "No, you you can't fire that junior developer. We just paid millions of dollars for them to learn the lesson that they're never going to do that again, right? Why would we fire them?" They've just learned something and they're never going to do that again. Of course, if it happens again, then you do have to fire them. If people don't learn, that's bad. But as long as you're learning, I feel like there isn't really that many bad mistakes you can make.
1: What does the future look like for CD and the product and for your team?
0: For us, product-wise, like I said, a lot of it is about figuring out what do we do next out of all these great ideas that we have what is the most important thing for us to tackle next where do our customers and potential customers have problems that we can help them with where they're that are really painful Um, and it's a lot of what we got to figure out on the other side we got to figure out how do we build a larger organization right like how do we scale up this team without breaking the processes how do we put the processes in place to be able to scale to a large organization how do we match our gro- our team growth to our customer growth so we can support them, so we can sell them, so we can ship features for them that they want. Um, and a lot of that is what we're trying to figure out right now, putting these processes in place, um, figuring out things like SOC 2 compliance, right? Like big companies are asking for SOC 2 compliance. We kind of got to get it, but it's a, it's a really intense process. Um, ultimately, it'll make us better as an organization and it'll put processes in place that are good, Um, for both us and our customers, but you just gotta do those things, right? And it's a little bit, again, almost hygiene, right? It's like, we ship the thing and people like it. Now, let's make it into a company and a business that can scale up to a very big size.
1: Let's switch to you, Max. Who influences the way that you work? You name a, a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person that you look up to and why?
0: so many names come to mind I have to figure out which one I'm gonna say
1: that's a good problem to have <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would say one of the people that has influenced my career the most is Nick Graf who is an engineer also from Vienna who, who runs the React Vienna Meetup. and I I had the pleasure of, of meeting him and, and becoming friends with him five six years ago and he's always thought so much bigger than I was thinking at the time and he's always pushed me to go a step beyond what i was planning on achieving right and i think without nick graf's influence and his mentorship and him pushing me to to say hey look you can you can do more than this like you don't have to be satisfied with this level you can do more you can achieve bigger things and pushing me there and really showing me it's possible you can do it um that's definitely influenced me the most and i i would not be where I am today without Nick uh, on my side, uh, which um, makes me very grateful uh, to have found such a great friend and, and, and mentor. Although I'm not sure if he would agree with the word mentor, I think to him I'm just a friend. But uh, he's definitely what I would categorize as a mentor, and he's influenced my career in in ways that that pretty much nobody else has.
1: Well, we talked about you know we talked about mistakes, right? And and I. I get where you're coming from on your answer. I'm gonna ask it in a little bit different way and with a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: I think one of the things that I've only recently realized is how much of a game changer working with great people is. And if I were to do it again, I think I would start hiring a lot earlier because the people we've been able to bring on board have meaningfully, seriously changed the, the trajectory of our company and if honestly we waited too long to hire people like like that was I think one of the biggest things I would change nowadays. I've learned that people matter but they matter even more than I already thought they did and The earlier you can bring them on board, the more time they have to impact the the trajectory of a company. And the earlier the companies, the bigger, the more influence that change in trajectory has. If you're already huge, changing the the trajectory a little bit makes a difference, but not as much as for us, right? A one percentage change now is going to be I don't know how many thousands or tens of thousands or millions of percent in a year or two, right? Like every single slight adjusting adjustment of our trajectory makes a huge impact over time, and and I. If I were to do it again, I would hire great people earlier if I could.
1: Well, last question, Max. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur builder who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit?
0: I'm going to give a very specific recommendation, which is read a book called the mom test just honestly i think it's a terrible name but the contents of the book changed my life for sure particularly my entrepreneurial journey and what that book is about is how do you build something people want how do you figure out what people want because what i often see young founders do particularly is they go to people that either are friends or are acquaintances or random people they meet that might not even match the 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 audience of the thing they're building and then they go there and they say hey look at what i've built isn't it awesome and of course nobody goes no that isn't awesome right like that just does not happen nobody goes hey i don't think this is great people will go yeah this is great what if you also did this right um and they'll add suggestions that don't really add any value and what that book essentially taught me is how do you talk with potential customers and the the, the answer is, you don't talk about your solution, you talk about their problems, right? I think that's what it mainly boils down to. You ask them, hey, what problems do you have? And if the problem you're solving comes up in the problems that they think about, that's a great sign that you're building something people want. If it does not come up, then maybe think about solving one of their actual problems because you're obviously not providing any value to them. And ultimately, if you don't solve somebody's problem, they're not gonna use your thing, Never mind pay for it. You have to solve a problem for a person. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I learned. And, and I would highly recommend any, any young entrepreneur to read the mom test. It really changed the way I communicate and the, the way I build products.
1: Fantastic. That's great advice. Well, Max, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Graph CDN.
0: Thank you for having me. It was great to be here.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story